0: Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. It's great to be back with you. As you know, last week I um, had a chance to be away and serve another congregation, and so they didn't want me uh, full-time, so I'm back. You stuck with me. Uh, but nevertheless, as you know, we are continuing in our series in First Thessalonians, and as Pastor Ryan may have described, there is a particular passage of scripture that we wanted to, I guess, preserve for the unique perspective and grace that God has given me by having uh, worked in the marketplace for, for quite some time and then having been bivocational. Today's text will talk a little bit about work. And so um, as we prepare for that, um, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you for the great and wonderful opportunity of being able to open your word and have you to breathe on us. We, Lord God, affirm our faith in you that you are a God who desires to speak to your people. You have spoken uh, through, Lord God, the uh, prophets and the uh, Lord God, writers of old. You do speak through your spirit and through the illumination of your word, Lord God, through the agency of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the preservation of your principles uh, through, uh, Lord God, the scriptures. And we ask now that you would open them for us, that we might develop an effective theology of work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, um, we are going to be taking a look at First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and they read as follows. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, that uh, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs or to mind your own business Uh, and to work with your hands uh, as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. At first read, this may seem like another one of those obscure inserts that almost doesn't belong in the natural flow of the text. Right? Remember how we first began reading and Paul was very complimentary, gushing with all kinds of appreciation for the faithfulness of the saints of Thessalonica. And in his conversation, telling them about how much he missed them and wanted to be with them and therefore he had sent Timothy to check on the nature of their faith. And then, of course, the overarching theme of the book being one about how they are waiting while they're waiting on the Apostle Paul to come and visit, they should ultimately be waiting on the Lord. And then uh, just prior to this, in the text, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Ryan kind of taught us on uh, this whole idea of personal holiness. That almost seemed like a slight departure, but it's not. but then after that text, now we have this conversation about working diligently with our hands, minding our own business, and then, or minding our own affairs, and working in a way that gives us a proper relationship with those that are outside and depending on no one. It almost seems like Paul is on the rabbit trail, but he's not, and here's why. You see, a healthy and balanced theology of work is going to be built on the same foundation as our salvation. And I'm going to unpack and talk about that in just a few moments. But today, I want to talk to you about this. And it is simply put, today's title or today's uh, uh, big idea is our work ethic should also be a part of our witness. Our work ethic should be a part of our witness. Now, notice how when I first began to describe thematically all the topics we had covered, eschatology, the anticipation of the Lord's return, personal holiness, and the the work of the Holy Spirit. That seems really ecclesiological. That seems really theological. That seems like a great church conversation. That seems like good spiritual stuff to talk about. But what is this thing about working with my own hands, not being dependent on anyone, and minding my own affairs? Where is this coming from? Well, the reason that we feel tension is because we in the West have the wonderful gift and burden of compartmentalization. We believe that certain topics belong in the church and certain topics belong at work. We have been both the beneficiaries and unfortunately um, the victims of the separation of church and state, not just from a political or legislative standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint. We have the ability to shut off or firewall our theology from our practical work life. And this must change, this should change, not just because Pastor Rod says so, but because of the nature of work as it is described for us in God's word. And so you'll notice at the end of Paul's words, he says, but we urge you, brothers, in all of your brotherly love. Remember this now, follow these words carefully. Now concerning brotherly love, you don't have need for anyone to teach you. For God himself teaches you, and it's obvious because you are not only showing brotherly love to one another, but you're showing brotherly love throughout all of Macedonia. But then he says, not only are you showing brotherly love throughout Macedonia, we want you to continue and we want you to do your work in a way that also causes you to properly relate to outsiders, that is, those who are outside the faith. And so it is obvious here that the way we love one another and the way it shows up in our work ethic should also be a part of our witness. That should be plain to you in the text in the way that verse 12 reads. So our work ethic should be a part of our witness. There are four major ideas today that I'm gonna press on in order to paint this picture of what I believe the Bible clearly shows concerning how our work ethic should be a part of our witness. The four major ideas for you note takers are these. We wanna talk about the reason for work, the rigor of work, the reflections of work, and the reward of work. Man has been given by God a sense of industry. And it has a reason, it has a rigor, it has a reflection, and it has a reward. And we wanna cover those. So as we talk about the reason for work, why do we have work? There's, there's a couple of ideas that I wanna drive home. Number one, you heard me say that a theology of work should be built on the same foundation as our salvation. Whoa, Pastor Rod, how do you get that? Well, consider Jesus' words when it comes to this notion of brotherly love. Remember, Paul says, Continue to love your brothers all the more, to do your work in a way that would allow us to properly uh, appear before those who are outsiders. But brotherly love is built on the foundation of Jesus's words here in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. Follow me carefully. And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And this is the second of the two great commands and it is you shall love your neighbor as yourself and there is no other commandment that is greater than these. So the great linchpins or the anchors of our salvation, proper orientation and relationship with God, reconciliation, proper orientation and reconciliation with my fellow man, right? Well, what occupation can you occupy, whether you are a stay-home parent or whether you are the manager of one of the largest hedge funds in America, there's no place that you can go where your orientation with God and your connection or orientation with your fellow man is not in view. Our work is inherently an expression of how we are aligned with God and with our fellow man. So the integrity of our work is in view in the way that we love the Lord. Notice how we are called in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31 to respond to God. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, right? So that's my my motives, my creativity. With all your soul, my creativity, my emotion, and with all your mind. And guess what else it says? With all my strength. So in other words, love for God isn't just spiritual, emotional, or mental, it is also physical and practical. How do I love the Lord with all my strength? That is, through the things that I do, everything that I do as a human being should be reflective of the loving reconciliation that we have with God. It should course through my work, regardless of the nature of my work, whether it is manual labor or whether it is mental labor. And so a theology of work is built on the same foundation as our salvation. I will approach work, based on my views of God and my views of my world and my fellow man. It will always craft my view of work. If you don't believe it, take a look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. In Genesis chapter 2, we have the scene of God having created uh, the Garden of Eden and and all things prior to that and is about to uh, create man or has created man and then he places man in the garden and here it is. The Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. And the Lord commanded man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day you eat it, you shall surely die. Notice that man prior to sin had a job. Mankind had a job, and so mankind's original relationship with God included a stewardship, something that we were supposed to dress and keep. We had an assignment, something that we were supposed to do. Work is a part of the original relationship with God. And so not only that, but then let's fast forward into the scriptures post-fall, and we see something else about the nature of our work, even though the two worlds have been ripped apart. Notice that in the garden, Adam was both, and the worship place because he walked with the Lord in the cool of the day and he was in the workplace because he was supposed to dress and keep it it is God's plan it is God's intent that the worship place and the workplace was originally supposed to be the same place But obviously, per the fall, man was evicted from the garden. But even per the eviction from the garden, man was not removed from his responsibility to work in a way that was still reflective of worship. Here's how we know this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 and following, even over into chapter 4. Follow these words. Bond servants, or even slaves, some of you, your Bibles may say. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance for your reward. You are serving the Lord, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters or bosses, managers, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Don't know how many of you have ever seen the show Undercover Bosses, but what the Lord is telling us is that he is always the undercover boss. Regardless of your position within a particular company, regardless of the kind of enterprise that you are involved in, whether it is a homemaker or whether you have built your own business or whether you are flying jets, it does not matter what your enterprise is. God is always the undercover boss. The Bible tells us very clearly that whether you are a manager, God's your manager, and whether or not you are a, a a servant, you are serving as unto the Lord. So both employees, both fall under the microscope of God's supervision, and he says both of you should be moving toward one another as if you have a heavenly father. So now can you see how one's love for our fellow man and my love and orientation toward God is the foundation for how I even view my occupation. So because I cannot respond to my boss well, I will not respond to my work well, nor can I respond to my employees well, or or anything else if I don't have a balanced and proper theology of work and so if I love the Lord with all my heart mind soul and strength it should show up in the way that I lead and manage it should show up in the way that I respond to those who have authority over me it should show up in the quality of my work when no one else is watching it should show up in every facet of my life and so that, so our lives are not compartmentalized into these are my worship behaviors and these are my work behaviors it is god's plan that those two worlds be reconciled i was so pleased i was talking to uh one of our good sisters here uh, in the body of christ just the other day just this week and she was uh, sharing about the great freedoms that she has on the job and how she is able to come and go as she pleases and as we were talking about that, she then followed on by saying, but I have to make sure, she says, I have a good, good father. She, she reviews the, 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 the great ease and the freedoms that she has on her job as an outflow of the father's goodness, not the function of her degree, not a function of her industry, not because of the lightheartedness of her boss, she views it as a function of the Father's provision. That's the kind of mentality, regardless of industry, that we should all have toward our roles. That the freedoms or even the opportunities to work that we have within the occupational uh, space are all part of God's provision. And not only did she recognize that role and its unique freedoms as being a part of God's goodness toward her, her response was the following. Therefore, I need to not take advantage in an unscrupulous way of the freedoms that I have. I must make sure that I'm getting my work done. Isn't that an awesome idea? That when you view God as your undercover boss, so to speak, when you view that no matter what you do, it's the Lord who's watching and that what you have has ultimately come from him, that there there is this automatic divine quality policy, if I might make up a phrase, right, at the risk of sounding slightly charismatic, right, that the Lord's ability for us to gain and get wealth and in our hands and minds and giving us our various competencies, that the way we yield it back to God is by not cutting corners, not uh, uh, missing punches, not lying about how long we've been on lunch, right? That, that we come to the workplace or into our respective jobs with a certain sense of integrity because we recognize that God is watching. Thank you for that, um, Sister Tiffany Harrison. I'll give you some shine uh, in the video today. It was her that I was talking to about the job. And uh, so glory be to God that that kind of mentality lives in the heart of the believer. And so, when we look at uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 4, uh, 1, what we recognize is that mankind's view of his work also shows his views on worship. Now remember, the servant toward the master, probably one of the most contentious relationship analogies the Bible could provide, a slave to his master. And this is not the Bible validating uh, slavery in any way, shape, or form. I'm actually uh, writing a paper on this particular subject for those of you who are interested in peering more into it, and I'll drop the link sometimes later once it's complete, but back to our regularly scheduled program. When it comes to the, the the one of the most contentious work relationships that one could ever imagine, the bondservant and the master, God speaks into that relationship and says, both parties are accountable to him for doing that work in a way that tells a story about who they worship. Now that's awesome, isn't it? Because once again, one of the, one of the great tendencies in our culture today is to separate the worship place from the workplace and believe that there are certain attitudes and ideas that only belong in one that don't belong in the other. What I believe that this passage would always have us to do, if, if, if we recognize that mankind's theology of work is built on the same foundation as the salvation, and that mankind's original relationship was also a stewardship, and that mankind's view of his work is also going to show his view of worship, what this tells me is that every field, regardless of what it is, is a mission field. Every field, regardless of what it is, is a mission field. Refer back to our original text in verse 12 we are told to work to live quietly to mind our own affairs to work with our hands as instructed verse 12 so that you may walk properly before outsiders trust me any and every time the bible talks about outsiders it's never about trying to impress sinners it's never about trying to impress or curry favor with those who are outside of christ any attitudes that we want to have toward the unbeliever is always with a view toward attracting them to our God and sharing with them our gospel. And therefore, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 reads this way. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, sanctify the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, those who would slander believers, this Bible, this word assumes that believers have access, relationship, and visibility to non-believers, and it also presupposes or assumes that they will be critical of us at times, and it also suggests that the critical, uh, the critique that we find in the world's eyes can be liquidated by a proper behavior and work ethic. Sharing with them while we have hope, but at the same time, they will be put to shame by watching our work ethic. Ladies and gentlemen, step back from the television, your laptop, sit down, take a sip of coffee, ask yourself the question, is that true of you? If you are critiqued by a peer at the daycare center where you work, if you are critiqued by a fellow coworker, would their critique be founded or would they be put to shame by the lengthy, practical resume of your workplace integrity? Would they go around to other coworkers and try to shame you only to be met with, are you crazy? such and such does their job diligently. We've never had a better employee. What do you mean? Uh, uh, Do we work in that way that people would be put to shame when they critique us? Every field is a mission field. We always have an undercover boss and all of our work is some form of worship. Let's continue. Well, now we've talked about our reason for work. I want to talk about the rigor of our work. work. in all of its forms, in some way, shape or form has rigor. It can be hard. Why is that? Genesis chapter three, verse 17 through 19 says the following. And to Adam, he said, so this is after sin, right? So Adam already has a stewardship or a job. Adam and Eve already have a job in the garden. Satan has entered in. They have now sinned against God by violating the the worship place, workplace principles that God put in place by, by overstepping a boundary. They're about to be evicted from the garden. And here's God passing out punishments. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, "'Because you have listened to the voice of your wife "'and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you uh, not to, "'that you shall not eat, "'cursed is the ground because of you. "'In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, "'thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, "'and you shall eat of the plants of the field.' Uh, by the sweat of your uh, face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and you, uh, for you are dust, and the dust you shall return. Notice that work is not cursed, it is the ground. Work is not cursed. The rigor of work comes as a product of sin that we introduced. So work is not cursed, but obviously our world is fallen. Our work has been impacted by the curse, but our work is not the product of the curse. Why am I doubling down on this particular concept? Because there is this weird, incorrect idea that work is cursed and that we shouldn't be working or we're trying to get away from work. As a matter of fact, there are two uh, uh, um things that I see both clear in scripture and clear in the world around me that that help me know that most of us believe that because work is hard that it is somehow cursed work is not cursed it was it was part of our relationship and stewardship and our worship before God prior to sin work is not cursed but it is obvious that we believe work is cursed in the way that we respond to it because even some of our predecessors in the Bible needed to be corrected with the following words Uh, Proverbs chapter 18 verse 9 whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him that is a destroyer and then in Luke chapter 12 verses 15 and 16 Jesus said this and and he said to them take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He went on from there and shared a parable about a man who built barns to save up uh, uh, treasures for himself on heaven, on, on earth, but not in heaven. And his life was claimed and he couldn't take any of the stuff with him. But what are, the, what are the results of a fallen view of work? A fallen and warped view of work results in these two predominant cultural reflexes. Work avoidance and work equivalence. You see, work avoidance, that is being idle or being lazy. There are those of us, myself included, who, if I let my flesh take over, I will naturally trend toward either avoidance of work, that is laziness and idleness, or the equivalence of work. Equivalence, bear with me. What I mean is, the gentleman who is featured in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 12, verses 15 and following, is guilty of equating his personal value with his work, the sum total of his possessions being his value. These are one of the two great fallen dynamics of a broken or fallen or broken work theology of work. We either avoid it because we think it's cursed or either we evaluate our life through it, meaning my work equals my value. This is not correct. This is not correct. Our sense of industry is actually a reflection of the Imago Dei. I'll say it again. Our sense of industry is actually a reflection of the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei, if you're asking, Rick, we haven't picked on you in a while, what is it? Can you type it in the comments? What's the Imago Dei? Oh, okay, somebody else beat you to the punch. It's the image of God. The fact that our sense of industry, it is a reflection of the fact that we were made in God's image. If you look at God, he is one who creates something out of nothing. He simply spoke, and things that previously were not material became material. This is analogous or reflected in the life of human beings who are creatives. We make things. You make things. If you are a creative, you're a person who imagines a solution or comes up with an idea that doesn't even exist, and you bring it into fruition. You make things. That is a reflection of the image of God. That is a great sense of industry that is given to you as ha- by having the divine imprint and impress on your life. There are those of you who may not be creatives, but you are involved in manufacturing or multiplying. The ability to multiply things or cause them to multiply is also one of the attributes of God that we see in creation. He gave each of the things that he made the innate capacity to multiply and then told Adam to manage it. So whether you are a maker of things, a multiplier of things, or a manager of things, all of these activities are part of how we reflect the image of God. God is managing all things for his own righteousness. God gives the the, the multiplication of things are a part of how he shows prosperity, when he allows things to multiply. And of course, God is a maker. And so our sense of industry is a reflection of the imago dei, that's right, the image of God. And so we should avoid this idea of work avoidance, trying to be lazy, and work equivalence, where I begin to associate my personal value with what I do. It doesn't matter what you do in this life, your value comes from the fact that you have been made in the image of God, not the sum total of of what you possess or the valor of the job that you did to possess those things. Uh, we are all, in God's eyes, made with His image, made in His image. And whether it is the trash collector, whether it is the janitor, or whether it is again the CEO of the most ginormous company uh, in the world, God views each as having been made in His image, and has a-, a-, a level of accountability that He places on each person in their respective spaces. That has nothing to do with your personal value, but everything to do with how you are leveraging the workplace and the work in the industry you do to worship him. Um, If you don't believe this, or if you're struggling to piece these concepts together, and how easy it is for us to reflexively move toward work avoidance and work equivalence, that is avoiding doing the things we should be doing, and also adding, trying to uh, uh, suggest that our personal value is tied to the things we're doing, look at the advent of the smartphone and social media. This is not an indictment on either. But I want you to understand that the pervasive uh, undeniable popularity of the smartphone and the integration with it in our social media take advantage of both of those human reflexes, work avoidance and work evaluation and evaluation. Why? What are the two primary things? Most people wake up in the morning and before they do their work, they're on their phones. It's just a great way to mind-numbingly not have to do anything. What are one of the greatest distractions in our day to being on task and doing exactly what we should be doing? Is mindlessly having our heads down, flicking and flipping through our phones. And what are we doing on our phones? Are we scrolling through our contact lists? No, we're typically on social media. And when we get there, what are we doing? We are, if we post things about ourselves, looking for value, right? What are people saying about me? And so both work avoidance and work equivalence or trying to to gain value through likes, follows and ads through the pictures we've taken or the things that we're saying or just having the phone in our hand in general and just idly fuddling through. This device has capitalized on the two greatest reflexes of humanity, a desire to retreat into idleness and away from God glorifying industry. Again, these are not indictments on social media or the phone because God himself does rest. But rest, that is not put in the right place, is an avoidance of industry. And that's what I want us to capitalize on. So this isn't about God trying to make all of us be workaholics. This is about putting rest in its proper place. Because our sense of industry is a reflection of the imago dei. And if we're made in God's image, there should be a clear way in which we work and a clear way in which we rest. And so... um, Let's take a look at another passage of scripture that'll help us not only understand the reason for work, which we've covered, the rigor of work, which we've covered, and the reflection of work, which we've covered. The reflection of work is we are reflecting the imago dei uh, in the way that we work. But I want to drill a little bit further on this and correct some additional views that may be out there that that are wanting. We've talked a great deal about this movement from idleness to industriousness. Where does this come from? So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul very softly and gently says, and aspire to live quietly and mind uh, your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you. He says it in a very nice way. But take a look with me, if you will, at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 and see if you notice anything. He turns up the volume balls up his fists and bangs on the podium a little bit on the same subject. He says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but being busybodies. No such person, now such persons, command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn your own living. So here it is, Paul in two separate uh, letters to the same church, doubles down, but in a second letter, a little bit more aggressively in calling people out of idleness into industriousness. This is what the Bible does, calls us out of idleness into industriousness. I believe that this, this idleness, this call out of idleness is one of the greatest temptations for teenage males. Teenage males, uh, I'm on Amon, that's my son, I'm speaking to you. If you can hear me today, if you're watching this via laptop, or maybe, I don't know if you'll be in the sanctuary, uh, 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 Ian, Calvin, uh, the, the, uh, the cadre of young men who hang out with Leonard and, um, and, and Jacques, I'm telling you, teenagers, teenage males, idleness is one of the greatest temptations in your life. You must fight. You must fight for a sense of industry because the last thing you want to do is grow up to be a lazy man. You know, in my house, we have a mantra and that is the most dangerous man alive is one that does not pray, that does not think, and that does not work. And if you find out that you have a friend that has all three, you need to immediately get him out of your circle if you can't get him to raise his game. Uh, but it is a dangerous prospect to come across a man that will not pray, that will not think, and will not work. And let me tell you something, teenage males and others of you too, I don't want to be discriminatory. I'll, 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 I'll broad brush this, but I, but I really want to narrow in. The inordinate amount of time that you spend fiddling with your phones and various platforms of technology open you up to a lifestyle of idleness and being busybodies that is you are doing something but it is not the thing that you should be doing and when we are idle we wear a sign on our backs that says satan i'm available for mischief i'm gonna say it again when we are idle we are wearing a sign on our back that says satan i'm available for mischief Now, you might be saying, Pastor Rod, is that some of your old granddaddy wisdom? Is this some stuff from Alabama that you're bringing into the word of God? Is this found in the Bible? It is, actually. And here it is. First Timothy chapter five, verse 13 says this. This is Paul speaking to Timothy about the proper administration and treatment of widows within the local church. But the way that he talks about which widows to receive and which widows to, to, to encourage to go and, and find work, it, 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 it's modeled around not only the treatment of the widows, but also at the core of it is something about industry versus idleness. Watch this. And it applies to us all. Besides that, they learn to be idlers. He's talking about young widows. Besides this, they learn to be idlers. Going about from house to house, uh, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have the younger widows to marry, to bear children, to manage households and to give themselves, listen to this, to give themselves to certain to, to, to certain functions where, where they are being industrious so that they wouldn't be open to slander from the adversary. You see... Satan is always looking for those who are idle because this is his great opportunity to come in and to lay accusation against us or to plant ideas to move us into things that are more stimulating or riveting. I think you get where I'm going with the air quotes. If you are a young man who's struggling with pornography, I'm just going to call you out. I'm not going to call your name. I'm just going to tell you this. What are you doing with your idle time? If you are a young man, an old man, and even if you are a young woman who struggles in this area, What are you doing with your idle time? Because idleness versus industriousness hangs a sign around our back that says, Satan, I'm bored and I'm available for mischief. So, industry, a sense of industry, work, purpose is not a curse. The rigor of work, yes, is due to the fall. But the reason for work, did not come from the fall. The reason for work is that we would be reflectors of the Imago Dei. And when we're not on task, we're setting ourselves up to become busybodies. And busybodies might sound like a, might sound like a funny term. It might sound like a, a neighbor who drifts throughout the neighborhood spreading gossip. And, and that, that is a, uh, an example of a busybody. But the busybody uh, distinction is, it has much greater risk to it. It's something that all of us can fall into when we're pretending to be on task but not doing the things that is the task of the hour, not doing the things that's necessary to be done in that moment. This is why the apostle Paul says, listen, you need to work in a way that is focused and you are minding your own affairs, right? Because there's something about focused work that keeps us out of trouble and keeps us from meddling in things that we should not be a part of. There's also a certain sense of industry that the Bible says that for the person who stole, let him steal no more, but let him go to work with the hands. Work is actually the antidote to warding off the temptation to illegally acquire things in life. You might say, well, Pastor Rod, I'm I'm not no thief. No, you're not. But the biblical portrait of how work is the antidote for the thief is that industry has a certain sense of dignity, that it allows us to appreciate things that we earned by virtue of the sweat of our own brow. And, we see, and give th- we see God in it and we give him thanks for it. Work also has a reward. This is the final point. I told you that we talk about the reason for work, the rigor of work, the reflection of work, and now here we are with the reward of work. The reward of work, as Paul mentioned in this previous passage, is yes, a paycheck. That is one of the more, that is the, that is the least of uh, uh, our work's reward. Uh, the Bible tells us that the person, uh, uh, that the worker is worthy of his wage. And the Bible says that we should pay that. We should not withhold from those who have put in an honest day's work. Uh, 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 the, one of the rewards of our work is indeed a paycheck. But Jesus helps us to also see something else about our work when he refers to the body of Christ or believers as salt and light. The role of salt is that we it preserves, and the role of light is that it projects. We are to be salt and light, and that is as people see our effect on the workplace or in the home place or any place, as they see our effect, we should prever- provide a preservative element. I'm gonna tell you, you could work for the worst company on the planet, and, I, and I'm not talking about working for an unscrupulous and immoral industry, anything like that. But what I am talking about is, regardless of the work culture that you're part of, as a believer, your paycheck is not just your reward. A part of your reward in that place is that you are a preservative, that there is some aspect of the grace of God that brings goodness, right? Brings goodness to that place by you being there. You and I, as salt and light in the, in the work that we do, have a preservative effect on the places where we are, and we should be proud of that. That is a reward that we bring. Companies should be proud to have us, even if they don't know why they're proud to have us, because of what the Bible says, that we are salt and light. But we are also a projection of grace, not just a preservation of good, but a projection of grace, because the Bible says that where we are salt and light, that men would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Every field is a mission field. Every opportunity in the workplace is to give shine to the glory of God, that God might be glorified when they see believers being promoted, when they see believers being persecuted, and they don't understand how you can persevere under a bad boss, when they see believers operating in integrity, when everybody else is, is cutting all kinds of corners, and they want to know why, when you can't possibly be caught, we've covered all of our tracks, and you begin to reflect that the that it's God, that you have a boss that is watching, all the time we bring light to the workplace and because we bring light to the workplace The Bible also tells us that another part of our reward is that everything that we do in this life will be tested and evaluated as to whether or not it is of eternal merit. Even what we do, everything. The Bible tells us that when the Lord comes to inspect our work and to judge our lives, that every word and every deed, every word and every deed, not just the stuff that we intentionally did to boost the brand of the local church that we go to that we like, but every word and every deed will be held into account for the believer, not for condemnation, but for reward indeed. And the Bible says that these works will be analyzed. And so if all my works are going to be analyzed, then I want all my work to be aimed at glorifying God. And our ultimate reward is this, ladies and gentlemen. We are not working for salvation. We're working for this, to bring reconciliation between the role of the workplace and the role of the worship place. We as stewards of the gospel, we who walk in relationship with the Lord, have been given a stewardship. That wherever we tread our feet, wherever we walk, whatever we set our hands to, we are on mission. And we are to bring a redemptive impact to these places and these tasks, whether again, you are a homemaker, an entrepreneur, a CEO, a police officer, a coffee shop owner, a student, right, working at a gym, the way you wipe sweat off of the dumbbells is a part of your worship. Do everything as unto the Lord, and there is a beautiful sense of purpose and industry that will flood your heart because you'll see that you are being reflective of the Imago Dei. Ladies and gentlemen, let us commit to bringing reconciliation between the workplace and the worship place. Rake leaves, cut grass, burp babies, clean bottles, wash dishes, make sandwiches, cut checks, make deals, sell cars, take care of patients unto the glory of God. You and I are salt and light. We preserve what's good and we project the grace of God. Amen. Um, So thank you, Gospel Hope, for joining me as we unpack and work through uh, what it means to reconcile the workplace and the worship place because that was God's original intent, that the two would not be separate. Can I pray for us? Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your great grace and mercy, opportunity to represent you, uh, Lord God, wherever we go. We pray, oh God, that a new sense of industry would drape um, all of us, no matter what we do, um, so that we would take ownership for the great sense of industry that allow us to reflect your image or the imago dei. Um, Glorify the name of Jesus through us and our work. Amen.